Is it going? It's going. Just a few odds and ends. Um, some suggestions about <clears throat> blending the practice in with our life so that there isn't a separation. There's a kind of uh, laundry list or inventory that we usually have to give in this talk. Sit every day and... I should say it because otherwise I'll, I'll forget to do it. It always feels so medicinal or something. Try to sit every day. <laughs> Not try. Sit every day. Uh, if you can establish a regular practice, it can be quite helpful. Uh, not to mention necessary. Uh, the whole point is to build up a momentum. Um, I'd like to put this in the frame of reference of some of what was said last night about the kilesas. which have had a lot of practice commanding us, telling us where to go and what to do and what not to do and how to feel. And so, obviously, if we've had a lifetime's practice in doing certain things that perhaps have not been so helpful for us, if we want to counter that, we have to put in some effort. It's not a hobby, this meditation stuff. You can make it a hobby, and that's all right. It's up to you, really. You can, it can be a hobby. I take it back. You can definitely get a certain amount of calm each day, and that can be part of your uh, approach to living, among other things. But what it's designed to be is a, a full-scale, a comprehensive approach to living. And you need momentum just like for anything worthwhile, there has to be a certain momentum for it to take effect and for it to bear any fruit. Now, one way to develop momentum is to come to places like this. It's called intensive practice. And you probably understand that. It's a way of building momentum. But now, when we go home, the possibilities of losing that momentum are enormous. So unless we can conceive of some way of practicing which takes advantage of the very situation which seems to undermine the development of momentum, we're going to be at, an, at a disadvantage in terms of, of this whole approach, if, that's what, if this is what you would like to do. Um, and so it's helpful to have a, a regular sitting practice, really necessary. How often, how long, that's really your job, I don't know. For one person, an hour is just warming up, and for another person, it's an eternity. Those of you who are new, be prepared for something. You've had the support of a lot of other people here. And when you go home, you may find that it isn't as easy to sit for an hour. Maybe it wasn't easy to sit for an hour here, even with the support. But you have the support, and whether it's your fear of being ostracized or looking bad, you stayed here, at least sometimes. But when you get home, no one's watching. And it's very easy for the practice to dissipate itself and to just become a sentimental memory. Oh yeah, the weekend in March, that was really nice, wasn't it? Or really hard. People get a lot of pride on having it having been hard. 
something you can tell other people about how hard it was. If you have um, other people that you can share this practice with, of course that's helpful for the same reason that it was helpful to have people here to share it with. And if you live in a place where there isn't a center or a meditation group, uh, sometimes you can just find one or two people, and if you meet once a week and sit together, that can be very helpful in terms of helping to build this momentum. Studying can, tapes, you know, and so forth. And many things can uh, serve to nourish this whole approach if it's something you've decided that you want to do. Um, Let me talk a little bit more about the Kalesas and then read you a quote, which I hope will be helpful for all of us. Uh, At lunch, a friend of mine pointed out he was a little concerned about the use of Kalesas, greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, Although it's not something I made up, this is a classical teaching. What he was afraid of is that uh, he himself, who does some teaching, um, was concerned about people, many people who already have a negative view of themselves, having botched this and blown that and you know, all kinds of things that have not worked out. And now here's some more. You, know, you can go back now thinking, yeah, I'm a very greedy person and I have all this aggression and in terms of delusion, I'm always falling asleep and confused and in conflict. And boy, I didn't realize how bad it was. But he, they're right. I have all these kilesas. <laughs> well, actually, you're the very same person. You know, whether you heard this or not, whatever's going on is going on. But a proper understanding of it will help. It's not saying that you're a bad person. That is to say that all of us have. Uh, very strong visitations from these energies. These energies are very powerful in us. Greed, hatred, and delusion, and all of their offspring, more subtle. It's not saying that we're bad persons. Uh, What it's saying is that we're suffering persons. And it's not saying that you're, you're a greedy, except conventionally, if you want to talk that way. It's not saying that you're a greedy person or that you're a violent or, an, or a cruel person. Or even that you're a deluded or unaware person. Conventional language, we have to talk that way. But that's not uh, Dharma language. What Dharma is saying is that these tendencies, that is the kilesas, are forces that influence, they're struggling for control of the heart, as was mentioned last night. And that struggle is with wisdom, that in us, that in us which knows, and which have developed can really know more and more to guide us so that we live in accordance with the way things are. Let me read you a uh, quote that I find very inspiring, just so there's no confusion maybe before the quote, to give you a sense of what I'm trying to get across. Because I think my friend is right. Uh, I've seen people take on this teaching and then use it as another way to feel badly about themselves and to make life even drearier. When I was at uh, a monastery in Thailand with a teacher named Ajahn Mahabua, who's, some of you know, uh, a very fine Thai meditation master, One day, um, I was with the monks, and one of the monks did something wrong. It was hard to know what it was, but it was obvious to everyone. It was some violation of one of the rules. And Mahabua kind of turns up when you don't expect him. Part of the way he teaches, he just wanders around the monastery, and you never know where you're going to find him. And often he turns up just when you don't want him to be there. And he's not shy. (laughs) And he doesn't have a New Age liberal ideology. (laughs) He's very direct and forthright and tells you exactly what he sees and thinks all the time, or as much as I can determine. And so he really uh, laced into this person, just really let him have it in no uncertain terms. And I, I was very new. I was just there a few days. 
And then he looked over and saw me, and then he said something in Thai to, one, to uh, a monk who was translating for me. And essentially what he said was, make it clear to him that I'm not attacking this monk, I'm attacking the Kalesas. And it's really an act of compassion. That is, these Kalesas are harming him. That's the main reason. And whoever gets implicated in his life, he's going to harm them as well. And so it has nothing to do with this monk as a person who is a student of mine, who I love. But it has to do with these tendencies which have to be seen and have to be understood and have to be let go of. Um, And then there was a pause and then he said, it really has to do with uh, egotism and self-cherishing. You know, this notion of me first and self-centeredness. And he said, at this monastery, I'm assuming that anyone who comes here is interested in letting go of that kind of egotism and self-centeredness. And if they don't want to do it, I'll do it for them, as long as they stay here. So, he made the distinction very clear. Let me um, read this. This comes from the 13th Dalai Lama. The present one is the 14th. And maybe the only word you might not know, some of you knew, is bodhisattva. Uh, Just in the most general sense, you could say it is a kind of a Buddha in training. And one other aspect of it, which is not so much used in this lineage, is uh, it's not only attaining enlightenment for oneself, but also uh, liberating others. So it says this, The Bodhisattva is like the mightiest of warriors. But his enemies are not common foes of flesh and bone. His fight is with the inner delusions, the afflictions of self-cherishing and ego-grasping, those most terrible of demons that catch living beings in the snare of confusion and cause them forever to wander in pain, frustration, and sorrow. His mission is to harm ignorance and delusion, never living beings. These he looks upon with kindness, patience, and empathy, cherishing them like a mother cherishes her only child. He is the only real hero, calmly facing any hardship in order to bring peace, happiness, and liberation to the world. And someone like Mahabua uh, fits that description, an extraordinarily loving person, and very funny too, and also uh, quite fierce when it comes to these things. And so understand that right from the beginning. There's no confusion. It's not, it's actually a message of hope, because most of us do identify with these things so often that we come to think that we are them. And what the teaching is saying is, no, that our original nature, our true nature, what some call the Buddha nature, is untarnished. It can never be really damaged. It can be obscured. It can, it can be enveloped in all kinds of trouble. And one ancient image is of a very precious gem in the garbage. The gem doesn't lose any of its preciousness for being in the garbage, but it's certainly covered over by all kinds of foul smells and... Uh, discoloration and so forth. It's un- no one wants it. But in the middle of it is this gem. And that gem, of course, is each one of us. Now, does that sound um, kind of Hollywood to you? Or have you had intimations that in you, at your core there is something like that that has nothing to do whatsoever with what country you were born in, what gender you have, what schools you went to, what grades you got, how much money you're earning, whether people find you beautiful, handsome, attractive, brilliant, or an idiot. None of those things. It's beyond all of that. But we get so caught up in all of these different conditions that come and go endlessly that we come to think of ourselves as being that way. And if we come to think of ourselves as being that way, we may as well be that. That is, if you make such and such, you have such and such. And so what the teaching is is doing is giving us a clear sense that there's hope for each and every one of us. But it is also unsentimental. And it's pointing out, look, you have to take a look at yourself. 
You've got to see how you're actually living your life. Not how you think you do. Not how you wish you would. Not how your parents wish you would. But how do you actually live your life from moment to moment? Not in some painting on a big canvas with some abstract notion about yourself. But from moment to moment, seeing how we actually do living. How do we live? How do we talk? What happens when we're with people? How do we relate to our bodies? And so forth. Now, in this uh, quote from the 13th Dalai Lama, it's talking about the Bodhisattva, and so the accent is on helping other people. That is, here, those are the kalesas that are being talked about, and they're being talked about that is, the war is not with other people, it's with those qualities that are in other people, much as Mahabhu is saying. But now, for us, isn't the starting point ourselves. So it's not, forget about other people for the moment. We have to be warriors with ourselves. Now here, the metaphor warrior, some people like it and other people hate it. I, I, I can't account for your conditioning, you know, about what it means. It doesn't, has nothing whatsoever to do with macho or ego, obviously. In fact, it can be very quiet and unassuming. It has to do with inner strength. It has to do with refinement, often softness, compassion, love, but definitely honesty and clarity, which give it its warrior-like aspect. Some of you may have seen in uh, certain statues or Buddha Rupas or uh, other yogis in the more in the Mahayana tradition of a, a meditating yogi with a sword, uh, a sword that cuts through ignorance. Sometimes there's a flame at the tip of it. So that our practice has a lot to do with perfect seeing. Vipassana can be finally translated as that, as perfect seeing. And that's, the seeing is uh, what the weapon is. It's not muscles of a certain kind that make for the warrior. Because what the Kalesas hate most of all is light. They hate it. They hate just being looked at and being understood. Looked at with an interest, with a discerning eye. They don't mind if you hate them. That's great. That gives them nourishment. They don't care about that. Because they know that that's them in disguise sleep, slipping up behind you. And pretending to hate something that's outside of yourself. They know that. And if you embrace them, get all identified with them and take them on, of course, they're happiest then. That's great. And they have no, then they don't have any work to do. You're doing it all for them. But what they hate is, it's just even, very balanced, open attention. They just hate it. And one of the reasons they hate it is that they lose their energy when you start to examine any of these qualities. Okay, what I'd like to suggest in addition to the, what I think you all have had enough exposure to over the, even, even the weekend, and obviously a weekend is uh, just the very bare beginnings of, we can barely get across just what to do while you're sitting and walking, let alone how that interrelates with the full teaching. Because there's quite a, comprehensive teaching that goes along with the practice. Um, when these classes begin, do you, what do you do? Go to the breath or begin to breathe? Or, I, don't, I mean, what do you do when well, it starts to take Yeah, I went to that last night. If you think back about last night, uh, that is, you can use, that is, samadhi and vipassana can be seen as guardians of the heart. They're our great protectors. Okay. Uh, samadhi can protect you by doing just what you suggested. That is, the more you develop samadhi, if you, do, if you develop samadhi, then you have something. If you don't develop it, you won't have it. One image that uh, is used is that 
um, people who, who have had no training in samadhi, which is most of the human race, are like, in our terms, um, making it more contemporary, be like street people. That is, who have no protection from the elements, from the view of other people, from their possessions, or they're just vulnerable out there. What that means is that the kalesas just do whatever they want with you. You know, we keep getting caught. Uh, as we start to develop samadhi, it's like building a uh, bamboo house. In other words, there's a little bit, there's a bit more protection. Then it becomes a wooden house and finally a brick house. Now, uh, you just try to imagine along with me that as if you've tasted even one second of peace during the weekend, well, let's say a few moments of stillness or stability or equanimity, just try to imagine if that got a lot deeper and were a lot more stable and if you could go to it at will. That is, if you were able to drop into it and receive some of the, the nourishment that comes from that, for, for some soothing to, take, to, go to, to go into effect. So that when you're doing that, let's say that means in order to do that, that means you're not caught in what's raging outside. You've separated yourself from it. Again, it's not eliminating the kalesis but it puts you in a position of some safety, at least temporarily. Vipassana is more the sword. It's coming out of your, after you've rested. It's coming out. And again, it's not uh, screaming and ranting and raving at your greed or hatred or delusion, which would be more of the same. It's a very quiet, almost tender looking. It's got to be steady. And... The quality we're developing, whether you know it or not, and for those of you on the weekend, I think it would be hard to, to really see it, but we're, the beginnings are there. Uh, the Buddha was, somewhat, somewhat was once called someone who had mastered come what may seeing. We're learning that art, how to master come what may seeing. That means no matter what turns up, we're able to be there and attend to it. Now, right now, we can't do that. Oop, here comes that. Or we get lost in something. That is, whatever is there is welcome. It's like a party where whoever shows up is a welcome guest, including the most hideous things you can imagine that you're afraid of. Oh, here comes terror. Great, come on in. Sit down. Have a cup of tea. Or is it means the confidence that's being developed in our work here, which was slowly and painstakingly over a period of time developing, has to do with the confidence in, in the workability of things. That no matter what turns up, okay, uh, it's a disaster, but it's workable. That is, we have confidence in ourselves that we'd rather not have it, a death, a disappointment, a failure, a loss, whatever. Of course, no one wants to have any of those things, but we get them anyway. It's part of what's going on. But if there's a confidence that we have within us the resources that, can, that it's workable, that we can work with it and uh, actually learn and grow from it to make it even more... It's not just coping. We're already coping. We, we're doing that to a greater or lesser extent. It's more than coping. It's flipping everything around. The, the worst thing that happens turns out to be the best thing because it's your teacher. If something's that terrible, that shows where you're extremely vulnerable. And so you have an opportunity to grow through that. Okay. That's the attitude of the Bodhisattva warrior or the Vipassana Yogi warrior. Okay. Um, well, I don't remember where I was, but I'll just keep going from what you got me. No, it's all right. It's all the same. You have to say the same things over and over. Just you have to say them in slightly different ways so we don't bore each other to death. So the practice would be the samadhi, you, you understand, and the vipassana is the direct examination. Okay, that's, that's what I think I wanted to get to. In your life when you go home, 
try to do the sitting practice along the lines somewhat similar to what was suggested. And also, be awake as much as you can in your daily life. Now, since you won't have the support of a group and hours of sitting and walking, um, is there anything else we can do to keep, let's say, the samadhi part of the practice alive? And there is. If you can set for yourself as a a practice in itself, as a, a kind of training, an attempt to whatever it is you're doing, to do it wholeheartedly. And that has nothing to do with what it is. If you're washing the dishes and you're all alone in the house, to do it wholeheartedly, to enter into it. For, that, for those moments, you're, whatever we encounter is our life. And in those moments, washing the dishes is our life. And so, uh, if while you're washing the dishes, you're uh, fantasizing better places to be, like, you know, the bumper stickers, I'd rather be golfing, I'd rather be fishing, the whole society wants to be somewhere else. <laughs> no, really, it, it, read the stickers. They're either golfing or fishing or dancing, or else um, we're walking down the street with these, whatever you call them, Walkman, and we're tuning out what's right in front of us. We're in, who knows, learning Spanish in 30 days, you know, walking down the street in the middle of Central Square, Cambridge. Well, yeah, I, this Central Square, I just, I hate it. I, I'd rather learn Spanish in 30 days. Oh, great. So Central Square is out the window. Where you're driving is out the window. And now they, I've noticed they have a new TV set, which in case you're getting bored with the main program that you're watching, you're not quite sure you want to stay with it, up in the right-hand corner, you can get a second channel on simultaneously. (laughs) So you don't have to be stuck with just one program at a time. So you don't have to feel that kind of just being where you are and doing it simply and thoroughly. And then on the telephone, you know, it's hard enough to just have a phone conversation. Now, can I put you on hold? Well, I always say no. I refuse to be put on hold. If you want to have this conversation, let's have it. And, yeah, but there's someone else calling. I understand. You're going to have to just take that risk. <laughs> Live dangerously. That person may not call you back. I really... Yeah, but that's business. That's money. I said, oh, okay, now I understand. I'll hang up. That isn't samadhi. One way, the whole society is designed to wreck our samadhi. It, the, the whole point is, is to never be where you are. It's to always be fishing or golfing. Uh, and what we're, what's being said here is, is so utterly simple. And the, the paradigm for it is something you've been doing for two days. And that is coming back to this one breathing in and breathing out, right? A lot. Now, if you stick with it, you may see a certain beauty in it. It's not as an idea, you'll actually experience the beauty of it, of refinement. It's like a craftsperson, a craftsman working on something, just refining it over and over and over again. And you'll see there's a certain joy from doing one thing well. Uh, so in a, in a certain sense, it's needed at this point to bring some quality back into, into our lives. Everything is not quantity. Quantity doesn't mean better. More is better. I don't think that's true necessarily. Okay, so that if you can see part of your practice as, and not in any way inferior to the sitting or to coming here, but that when you're doing whatever it is you're doing, to do it, to really be open and sensitive and alert and also, now that's the samadhi part, it's to really be there with what you're doing. If you're taking a shower, take a shower. If you're getting dressed, get dressed. You'll see that it's not easy to do. Maybe you've already tried. I hope you've tried while you're here. And you'll see that your mind is running off into the future or reminiscing about the past or worrying about this or that. And it's amazing that we get through life as well as we do since we're so hardly ever where we are. So if you can uh, gradually try to turn that around, don't make it a grim project. You know, I've got to pay attention to everything I do People do that, and of course you'll be exhausted by noon. Uh, give it a lighter touch, and be prepared for losing it many, many times. And if, you know, at first, if you get ten conscious minutes, if you can squeeze ten conscious minutes out of the week, 
great. You laugh, but try taking just a shower. We've tried this experiment in, in Cambridge. I gave homework. We would all do it. Let's see if we can just take a shower. No one can do it. Now, we get clean. You know, the, the arms go like this and the shampoo goes like that. Everything gets done. You know, you're healthy and the under everything gets done. But where were you when it happened? Oh, I forgot. I was planning what I was going to say with the person I'm meeting at lunchtime and then, you know, then I was worrying about. And somehow it all gets done in a certain way. So be patient with yourself. But now, the degree to which you can can begin to simplify your life and to to really, if someone's talking to you, listen to them. It is another way of putting it, and this relates to other spiritual traditions, especially I've seen it in Christianity and mystical Judaism, is infinite respect. It's having respect for everything you do, which is another way of saying having respect for yourself or respect for life or respect for God, if that's your frame of reference. In Jewish mysticism, they talk about each person being allocated a small portion of the universe to tend, to take care of. So no matter what your situation is, no matter how humble your job is or your living situation, that's, that's it. That's what you're supposed to care for right now. And so it's in that spirit and just begin to enter into that. If you do that, as you can imagine, that helps build this momentum. And so when you come to sit, some of that transfers to the sitting practice. And if you really apply yourself in daily life, uh, you'll find that it helps your sitting enormously. This is just the, the steadiness, sticking with something. It also will immunize you from a certain disease that yogis get, which is, especially if you like this practice, that unless you're at IMS or CIMC or some other place with initials, that you can't really practice. Unless you're sitting like this, that you can't really practice. And that is a, uh, just an incorrect view of what the Buddha was talking about. As precious and as invaluable as intensive practice is and sitting, you have to be careful that it isn't used to subtly render daily life as being second class. Oh, yeah, vacuuming and meeting. Yeah, they're coming over today again. Yeah. Uh, that's our life we're talking about, and most of us are not going to be on retreat that much. There are people who live between three month retreats. Really, and this is some of the kind, so that the, the talk is very often about the past three-month retreat, reminiscing about what happened in this three-month retreat that just ended. That was very rich. And then a lot of the other energy is, how can I get enough money to put together so I can go to the next three-month retreat? Okay, in the meantime, nine months are going by. And those, what are those? Is that someone else living out those nine months? Those are real months in our life. Or people will do it, but feel, well, this isn't really practice. And, Boy, when I get to Barry, then I can finally start practicing again. I've seen it a lot. Now, especially for those of you who are new, if you get, develop um, an attitude that wherever you are is a perfect place to practice, couldn't be better. Some situation you hate, great. What is it showing you about yourself? You can learn. And when you can come to Barry, by all means, I'm not diminishing the importance of this place at all. It's an incredibly precious resource if you are oriented towards these things. But when you're not here, if you then use that to subtly discredit where you are, that's a mistake. And it's also, from the point of view of the teaching, it's dualistic. We've set up these splits. We already are, have the curse of dualism. It's driving us crazy. Don't set up another one. Now, in addition to, let's say, aiming our attention, being fully in whatever we're doing, there is still the notion of wisdom. That is, learning from what we're doing. And this one, I'm sorry that we didn't get to talk about enough, but there's just so much you can do on a weekend. And it has to do with some notions that probably you've picked up because they're in the air these days, even if you don't come to places like this. Notions like attachment leads to suffering. Has anyone not heard that? It's, it's part of the New Age panorama now. And that letting go is good. Anyone not hear that? 
Letting go is incredible. So now around Harvard Square, all you hear are people letting go all over the place. <laughs> but I don't see anything changing. Then there's always the question, I don't know if any of you have it. That sounds good about attachment, but what about relationship? How can you love someone and be in a relationship and, not, and be non-attached? Does anyone have that question or that concern? There's always one. Two? Yeah. I don't know, maybe you can't. Maybe when you get to the point that you're not attached at all in some love relationship, you no longer want to be in a relationship and you just, some, a halo just pops up automatically. <laughs> and then you retire from this, the, the relationship struggle, the battle of the relationships. Um, what I would suggest in terms of attachment, and that would include relationship, is, is what I consider after years of uh, futile idealism, dharma idealism, finally settling down to certain practicalities, which my parents told me about all, all along. <laughs> For example, let's take letting go. It's true. This is really the core of the Buddhist teaching. It's letting go not so much literally of things. That is, if you give up all your money, that doesn't mean that you're any more holy than someone who's a millionaire. It means you're just a poor person. <laughs> I just realized that. <laughs> now, it might mean that in the process of letting go of the money, you freed yourself from certain kinds of tendencies of grasping to feel secure, to feel okay, oh, then that's good. But it is possible, and I had one teacher, an Indian, uh, who was a multimillionaire, a banker, and an extraordinarily liberated, he was a bodhisattva warrior for sure. He was totally free of the money and had it all and used it, used it in very beautiful ways. So the letting go has to do not so much with anything in particular, particularly we, we as lay people, but it's letting go of the, the way we relate to things. It's not necessarily literally letting go of, of sex or letting go of food or letting go of money or letting go of any of these things that comprise the world. But it's letting go of the way in which we relate to these energies. Most of us don't know how to use. We don't know how to use sexual energy. So we either suffer because we have too much of it or we suffer because we don't have enough of it or we have the wrong kind of it or we have too much money so we become warped that way, or we don't have enough money, so we become warped that way. And the teaching is, at its most subtle level, is saying the problem isn't in money, the problem isn't in sex, it's in the way we use the energies of the world. Planet Earth is potentially a beautiful place. But not if we keep uh, viewing everything through ignorant eyes and turning all of these energies into problems, mainly people. Okay, in regard to this letting go, so the letting go really is moving towards freedom. It's letting go of our suffering is what is being talked about. But if you're in a hurry to get on with the letting go, there's some dangers. And this is what I meant about, finally I've learned some practicality a few years ago. I mean, I'm still learning it, but I finally got the message. How can you do all this letting go if you don't fully even understand what attachment is? You know, you read it in a book, attachment, grasping on to things, holding on to, yeah, that's right. I think I'll stop doing that. Okay. It's a little bit like chewing your food thoroughly. As probably many of you know, if you chew your food thoroughly, you get more nourishment from it and you're done with it. That is, you extract the full value, it passes out of your system in a nice way and you're a happier, healthier person just by chewing thoroughly, eating that way. I think that one of the things we have to do, it's a very, very important part of the letting go process, is to chew on our attachments. We have to eat our attachments. That is, if you have an attachment to anything, get to know it. Don't take attachment as an ideology. Well, the Buddhists say that if you have a lot of attachments, you suffer a lot. So I don't think I'm going to have a lot of attachments because I don't want to suffer. It's got to come from you. The Buddha said it, and it may be true. I think it is true. 
But it's second-hand knowledge. It may have helped the Buddha, but how is it going to help you? So what we have to do is, when you're attached, you find yourself attached, and this is a hint for daily life. Anytime you find yourself unhappy in some way, it could be a small thing like having to wait too long on the line in the supermarket. Ask yourself, what am I holding on to here? What am I pushing away, which is the same thing? Just investigate right in the moment. You don't need to have special posture for it. (laughs) And very often you'll see, oh, I'm hanging on to, I want my brand of yogurt to be here, and they're all out. Sorry, no more Dan and yogurt. Now, that isn't your favorite, but anyway, whatever. (laughs) So, you see that you're suffering because you're holding on to a certain brand of yogurt. Someone really did. I didn't make this stuff up. Someone else suffered from uh, being impatient on a long line in the supermarket, namely me. And so, get to know what attachment means from the inside, so that sometimes when you're suffering, feel the attachment at work. Feel what it's like to be holding on to something for dear life. Feel all the insecurity that's there, all the anxiety. Don't be in a hurry to skip over that into some kind of pseudo-letting go, which is not letting go. It's some kind of very rarefied suppression or avoidance. Or people let go of things that they don't have any interest in anymore. Yeah, I just let go of that. What was it? Well, uh, my teddy bear. Yeah, but, you, you, but you're 50 years old. And I said, yeah, but I, I just let it go like that. <laughs> when was the last time you really had strong interest in it? Well, when I was 10. That doesn't count. Anyone can let go of something they don't really want. It's when you're really holding on or really pushing away for dear life. The application of our practice is in that moment to turn towards it, to fully experience why the Buddha said that attachment is suffering. See, and this is the way in which wisdom can educate the heart. Let me end with this. Uh, I know we all have places to go and it's Easter Sunday and some of you may want to celebrate in your own ways. Uh, There are two ways in which the heart learns. I'm sure there are more, but these are the two main ways. One is the beauty of wisdom. That is, when we live in a way that's wise, that's compassionate, you feel better, you feel feel right. When when you don't have to worry at night when you go to sleep because you haven't cut corners and making a deal somewhere. Everyone's making deals now. And when I hear it, I always hear, what corner are you cutting? So often it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like a good deal. Uh Uh-huh, trouble. Whenever I hear that, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like that's what's happening. So then people have a lot of sleep problems, too, because of all these deals and corners that are being cut. Well, what if we, you know, we're honest and live simply and sensibly, etc., etc., and so forth. And we begin to see that living life in accordance with Dharma, with Dharmic principles, actually is fulfilling or we, the joys of meditation. Now, those of you who are new to this, you may find that really fanciful, but there are joys in meditation. <laughs> there are very, very, it's very beautiful practice. But you're on the launching pad, so be patient. So part of what the heart sees is, oh, it, it begins to learn, you mean there's a better way of doing things than the way I'm doing it, by following the kalesas? Yeah, look, look what happens when your behavior is in line with when there's personal integrity, or sometimes just the, the, the beauty of, of a full breath, a full free breath. Did anyone experience just the happiness of just breathing, even once? Good. That grows. And it's not like you, you're, you know, anything else had to happen. Well, don't forget that fact. Learn that you can be perfectly happy sitting and breathing. But wait a minute, isn't something else supposed to happen? Well, it didn't. Here you are, quite happy, just sitting quietly, doing nothing and breathing. Hmm, that's interesting. Where's this happiness coming from? I didn't get anything. It's coming from you. All the happiness we want is available. It's just waiting. Just help yourself. But it's not out there. It's inside of us, and we're learning how to participate with that. Okay, so part of the way in which the, the heart learns is through seeing... Is wisdom at work and seeing the benefits of, of uh, living correctly. And the other way in which it learns 
is when wisdom shows the heart. Look, you stick your hand in the fire and you get burned. You see what happens? Ow, that hurts. Right. Every time you do that, you're going to get hurt like that. Now, the fire is an easy one. We've all learned that one. But what about the more subtle fires? And here's where, this is what I mean about the spirit of, it, of attachment. Really developing intimate understanding of what attachment is. Really seeing the way in which attachment doesn't work. Because if it does work, full speed ahead. Let's all just hold on to everything. How could it work if the world is constantly changing and we're trying to hold things and keep them constant? When the universe is much more powerful, the law of impermanence just rolls on 24 hours a day, it never takes a break, it does not care whether we agree with it or not. Change, 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 uncertainty, right? Or is it just my life? So that attachment makes no sense. It's unintelligent. If everything's changing, but you say, let it all change, but not this. Good, it'll be torn from your hands, and then there'll be sorrow, much more sorrow. So the other way in which the heart learns is by vividly interiorizing a kind of knowledge that has to be intimate. Books are a start, but it's no more than a menu. Reflection goes a little deeper, but what goes even deeper is the meditation. As you start to fully absorb the implications of attachment. Now, then the letting go comes organically. And it's thorough, and it's deep, and it's authentic. Because it comes out of intelligence and understanding. And there's nothing more powerful than understanding. But here I'm not just talking about cognitive understanding. That is, when we fully know something, we're free. We're free of it. Or we're free to use it, if it's something that's good. And so, what I would suggest, and just let's leave it at, let's say, relationships. If you're in a relationship, and you find that you're possessive, if you find that you get jealous, you know, all the things that we do to each other, instead of trying to do an impersonation or bombarding, let's say your partner doesn't meditate, and you come home from the retreat, don't do this. I think we should all be, we shouldn't be so attached to each other. <laughs> and then some elaborate battle plan about how every other night you go out with the boys, and I'll go, you know, this, and, you know. Um, or what's worse is then setting up some kind of an ideal. The perfect yogi who's in a relationship, loving, compassionate, considerate, and totally free. You, oh, you want to go out with someone else? You want? Oh, sure, fine, great. <laughs> Rather, I think more realistically is to start from exactly where we are, which is selfish, self-centered, possessive little people. <laughs> we just want our gratifications, and if someone will give them to us, we love them. Right? Love, 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 that's all you hear. We don't like them. I love you. Sometimes it's true, but it couldn't be true all these times, because otherwise, why are we all you know, apart so much? So start where you are. Now here's what, uh, this, is, this is to me is not fanciful. There are a number of us who have been working with this. And it is possible to start to loosen the bonds of possessiveness, to give your partner much more room, and not out of an ideology, but out of realizing how much it benefits you and benefits the other person. Or whatever it is. That is, the practice is beginning where we are, seeing what our actual relationship is. And if there are these different expressions of attachment, and if you begin to see how they really... It isn't a good way to live. It's not helping either of us. Then more and more, through the practice, it is definitely not fanciful. It's possible to create more space and to live in a much more fulfilling way. Now, whether you ever attain total non-attachment while in the relationship, I don't know. I'm no expert in this realm. But I do know that it can be made much more humane and much more livable. And it's just through applying these simple principles to our actual relationships. Not just intimate, work as well, friendships, whatever. Okay, good luck. (laughs) 
we have a moment silence? May we all continue to look into ourselves. May we all see things exactly as they are. May such clear, direct seeing Free us from all forms of limitation. All you newcomers, you're free now. You can ransack all the bars and restaurants wherever you're going. Talk as much as you want. By the way, as you've been quiet, perhaps for some of you more than you've ever been intentionally for this long period of time, ease back into talk or you'll see why I'm saying it. I'll my larynx. What? Yes. I'll my larynx. You could. You could. Ease back into it little by little. And also, if you're going to drive right now, Perhaps don't, if you can, don't go to the road immediately. Uh, have a cup of something, talk to some people, and slowly come back to it. You've been in a slightly different mode for a while. Thank you for sticking it out to the end. That's our, around here, a uh, successful yogi is someone who finishes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.